Well, good evening, everybody. If you'd take your seats, we'll get going here in a second. Um, this evening, sort of our last, uh, our last conversation about this, and Gwen and I have actually been talking about this for some time. This is uh, a presentation, I don't know exactly what to call it, a presentation uh, that she's done in various places, but uh, you may not know this, but Gwen is a nurse, been a nurse for a very long time. She's also studied theology at Asbury, um, which is a, a very uh, reputable um, institution. And i uh, got a great Bible program, by the way. i got a bunch of friends over there. Yeah. And, uh, um, and anyway, uh, we've been friends for, for several years now, and so I really respect her highly. And we, wa- we wanted to talk a little bit tonight about death. Um, and especially, I told her, how do we die well? Um, how do we die well? It's an important question since we're all going to experience it. And uh, so Gwen's going to kind of help us think through some of the very practical issues um, and then some of the grieving issues as well. And then we'll continue this conversation uh, on Sunday, which, of course, as you know, is Resurrection Sunday, so the holiest day um, in the Christian calendar. Uh, so let me pray over this, and uh, we'll get going. Uh, Lord, I thank you for Gwen and her uh, service to the church, um, her passion for you, and, and her um, willingness to be here tonight, take work off, and to share uh, some very important thoughts with us. And so we pray that your spirit would be with us um, this evening as we think uh, deep and um, uh, deep thoughts, uh, but not fearful thoughts. As Christians, we have so much hope, and we have that hope because of the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we give you praise and thanksgiving uh, for him and for all that you have done for us. In the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. I am just really humbled to be here tonight um, to talk to actually talk to you about something that actually I am very passionate about. And it may sound a little crazy, but um, I've been working at the bedside now for about 25 years. Most of it has been intensive care unit. Recently, I've just gone to hospice care. And so I am confronted with families that are in crisis situations about um, their loved ones all of a sudden becoming ill and dying or had experienced a sudden crash and and um, their, their families are facing death. And then in the hospice aspect, it's kind of like because we do have such a great medical um, assessment tools and stuff, we can find out, um, you know, things like cancer and end-stage heart disease and um, Alzheimer's and, and Parkinson's disease and stuff like that that does take their toll, and, and we just don't have a way to um, turn around or correct those things. Um, so I, it's kind of weird how the calling kind of gets thrust upon you. And one of the ways it's happened is that after I went to seminary and I went back to the bedside, it it became extremely obvious to me that um, people have just got some poor theology and understanding what Jesus does for us, you know, between healing and our praying and the guilt that people place upon themselves or the family members and stuff like that. And so this kind of evolved into a thing that I called returning to the garden because initially we were designed to be in the garden, right, the Garden of Eden, and there will be a day when we will go back to the garden. And so that's, hi, hi there. (laughs) And that's okay. So that's how this, uh, the title started was Returning to the Garden um, so, because there will be a day when we will be com- going back to the Garden of Eden and stuff. Um, it's a huge problem. I mean huge problem with uh, people not dying well and there's just no reason for it. And part of the problem is, is that 
In, in our society today, um, physicians are taught that we have a pill for something, we have a procedure for this, we have a surgical correction for that, we have a machine that'll keep you alive. And is that true? It's absolutely true. And can we keep dead bodies alive? I could testify before you right now in the Lord that I have kept bodies alive for months in the intensive care unit. And it's really sad because at the end, they still die anyway. And they die a horrible death because it's very painful to, to maintain yourself to be on a lot of these drugs and a lot of these machines. So that's how this um, uh, ministry got started for me. And um, I've just done a lot of of uh, research and there's a lot more to do but there's one thing for sure I gotta make sure the clicker works here as George Bernard Shaw said the statistics on death is quite impressive one out of every one person is gonna die <laughs> okay unless your name is Enoch or Elijah expect it to happen okay so we just need to face the music um, we are going to die someday okay there are many aspects of uh, my ministry, and um, when I went to Jordan, I said, what do you want me to talk about and stuff? Some of the things we could talk about include the financial end, which is so totally not me. Trust me on that one. Um, advanced directives, durable power of attorneys, medical living wills, how to control pain, anxiety, shortness of breath and nausea, that kind of comfort so that when your disease process progresses, how do we maintain um, a good level of comfort within that? Um, we, we need to know when to stop. When do we know to pull, to, to pull the plug, so to say? But we need to know when to stop. Um, what's the difference between palliative care and hospice? You know, uh, they're both goal-oriented, but yet they're still not the same. Organ procurement, and that's just a fancy word for saying donating, donating your organs. Should you be brain dead? Or down the road, maybe you're not brain dead, um, but you have a disease process like maybe brain cancer. Are, is there a possibility that you can donate tissues and organs? Um, funeral arrangements and memorial options, as well as um, like body donation to science. Um, cremation, those kinds of things. A lot of people don't want to talk about this, but um, I've done some research and talked to funeral directors and what it takes, what, what, how much, what costs, and the biblical understanding behind it. And then, of course, there's always grief, which is more of a, I mean, I'll, I'll touch on it a little bit today, but that's more of a, uh, a counseling, a counselor. I mean, as pastors, we're all trained in that a little bit, but... Um, sometimes it gets really in, uh, really um, intense, and sometimes we just need professional counseling. So tonight, we're going to talk about advanced directives and medical living wills for sure. If we have time, we'll talk a little bit about grief. So advanced directives for healthcare. Um, make sure I'm on the right slide. I am. Okay. They're also known as the living will, personal directive, advanced directive, medical directive, and advanced decisions. So you want to know why society's confused? Because we have to have 15 titles for the same thing. Okay. <laughs> so an advanced directive for healthcare is a legal document that includes the following. The selection of a healthcare agent and backup agents. And what that means is basically you have a spokesperson for you. You have somebody in a... In, that's written down on a piece of paper that's going to make decisions for you in case you can't. Another word for that is durable power of attorney. 
the documenting, um, within this document, you can be very specific or you can be very general. Um, you could list your treatment preferences, which is also known as a medical living will, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, um, in case there's a life-threatening illness or terminal illness or persistent vegetative state, um, an end-stage conditioning. Um, there's a lot of different disease processes like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's that you go down a road and eventually you're nearing the end stage, and so you need to know what to do with that. Um, the advanced directive also only goes into effect when the patient or the person who's signing that directive um, is no longer able to make those decisions, is somehow incapacitated, whether they've had a heart attack and they're on the ventilator and sedated, or they've had a stroke and they're unable to, to carry out that thought process. There's no lawyer that's needed, so that's cheaper. <laughs> um, chances uh, or changes can be made anytime during the process. You must be 18 years or older in order to fill out one of them. Um, you may revoke it at any time, and you must have two witnesses. So that's, the, I, that's what an advanced directive is. Each state has their own form, which can be downloaded online. Now, the problem with that is that each form can be different. And so if you happen to cross state lines and you have your advanced directive with you, something happens, will they accept it at another hospital? By and large, the answer is yes, providing it, it covers, it doesn't go against any of their state laws. Let me put it that way, okay? Um, it's just good to have the conversation with your loved one as far as what you want, when you want it, how you want it. Okay. So within the advanced directive, there is what we have, what's called a durable power of attorney, also known as the healthcare proxy, Okay. Now, this is a person that you as the patient or you as the individual has appointed a healthcare proxy to make healthcare decisions. So, if I'm incapacitated on my living will, I'm a medical living will, I can claim my husband to make de uh, medical decisions for me. Uh, or if, he, if I feel like he is, uh, maybe he doesn't like me. <laughs> so, I want to make sure somebody can. Um, make a good decision on my behalf. So it doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be a child. It could be an, a parent. It could be actually a good friend. Um, it just needs to be talked about who would be the best person for you. The medical health care includes um, the, the, the person who's going to be making those decisions will be making decisions on what kind of services are going to be provided, whether they can give you some medications or withhold certain medications, perform different tests and procedures as well as surgical procedures, um, the proxy will have access to all your medical records. So if you are hiding something and you don't want them to know, you've got to be careful who you choose. Just kidding. Um, but they will have access, full access to your medical records. So if you need to get a copy of it, you can legally for whatever reason, whether it's insurance or whatever. Okay. If there is no legal DPOA listed on the advanced directive, then it... Uh, the state defaults to the surrogate laws, and they're in the following order. Did I list that? They are first your spouse, then your children, then your parents, then your sibling, and after that it goes to a surrogate person. It could be a neighbor that, is, that has taken care of 
a friend that has taken care of a neighbor or something like that for years. Um, that actually can fall under the legal category if there is no other family member. Okay, so within the advanced directive, you have a DPOA. There is another um, form that you could fill out. It's called the Medical Living Directive or Medical Living Will. It also has many titles. Living Will, Instruction Directive, Healthcare Declarative, Directive to Physicians, and Medical Directive. Within the Medical Living Will Directive, um, it names the person who's going to be making the care decision. So basically that's saying it's going to, it's going to identify the DPOA that you want to be your voice. It also identifies more specifically the medical treatments that are wanted and maybe that are not wanted. Um, it can also identify how comfortable you want to be made. And that sounds kind of like a crazy um, request because you would think, I don't want to be in pain. If I'm in pain, drug me up type of thing. But there are some people out there, and there are actually some Christian religions that practice, um, how do I say this nicely? They encourage you to suffer a lot because when you suffer, you have a higher place in heaven. I don't agree with that philosophy or that theology, but there are some people that do practice that. And I've actually taken care of those kinds of patients, and it's really hard because they don't want drugs, and they're suffering. So it, you, it will... On that, within the medical living will, you'll be able to have that option as far as how comfortable you want to be made. Most people want to be made comfortable but still alert, not snowed to the point where they're totally out of it. Um, how the patient is to be treated um, and um, what the dying patient wants people to know. So um, some of the older clients say that if they're in their 80s or 90s, they're very private so um, the, the, it would be the job of the DPOA, whether it's their spouse or their children or whoever they've identified, they may just say, well, she just was having medical problems and finally they just took her over and she died. And that was the end of it. As opposed to saying, well, she had the stroke and then after the stroke, she had the heart attack and after the heart attack, it threw her into failure and now she's got kidney failure and we decided not to, you know what I mean? So... Um, It'll identify exactly how much information can be released within the Medical Living Will Directive. Okay. The Medical Living Will Directive also discusses treatments more specifically, as I told earlier. It can talk about nutrition. And um, that's a hot topic. In America, we're all about the food. Is there any... Do I hear anybody object about that? When we get sick, what do we do? Here's some soup. Here's some this. How about if I feed your family? I mean, we're so good at treating people with respect when it comes to food, but sometimes, actually, the first thing to stop working when you're sick is your gut. So, um, and then if you have an advanced Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or stroke where you have the inability to swallow anymore, you're confronted, what do I do with nutrition? So it's something that you have to think about. Do you want a tube in your stomach and have liquid food go in that way, or do you not want to have that at all? So those are some of the things to think about when it comes to nutrition. The other thing is pain management again. There is a host of ways to control pain management. 
you should not have to go on the street and find some illicit way to get high in order to um, be comfortable. Um, we have ways that come, we have medications that are in the pill form. Some of those pill forms can be under the tongue and absorb very quickly. We also have ways to um, administer medications. I don't want to say through a shot um, because the needle pr produces this little uh, like hole that goes into your little your belly or something like this. It's very tiny, and you could just have medications go in that way into your sub, what we call sub-Q fat. And it could be slowly dripped in or it could be pushed in every four hours or something like that. Um, some people, depending on their disease process, a lot of people will have ports. They're usually in their chest. And um, we can just tap into that way and put medications in that way as well. So pain management, really, if you don't want to experience pain or at least get to the point where you should be able to interact and tolerate the pain that you're experiencing, there, there really is... There's, there's no excuse for that. You should be able to have some sort of pain management. Um, medical interventions. Medical interventions could be anything from um, going to have a CT scan to see how advanced the cancer is to um, placing, which I think is on here too. No, it's not on there. Um, maybe a tube um, for drainage, which sounds kind of crazy. Um, but if you have something like liver cancer, part of that process is that it cannot handle all the fluid that's being filtered in. And the fluids will actually back up into your abdomen, and that's why you see, like, um, the big belly with the skinny arms, because all that fluid is, is hanging out in your belly. When that fluid's hanging out in your belly, it's hard to breathe. So um, you may not have treatment for the advanced cancer of your liver, but you can have a medical intervention to put in a drain that will help relieve that pressure by draining the fluid off once a day. So those are some of the things that are some of, some of the options. There's other types of drains that are more palliative, where they actually make you feel better, but it is not curative, or it's not going to change the outcome, but at least make you more comfortable. And then finally, resuscitation and CPR. And I, I really wanted, I saved this for last because this is, this is a really a hot button. Um, a do not resuscitate order, DNR, um, needs to be a physician written order. Uh, you must have two witnesses on it. And it, what the definition of it is, is that it means that life-prolonging procedures be withheld or withdrawn in event of a cardiac or pulmonary arrest. What it does is it forbids CPR. Everybody know what CPR is, the compression on the chest. Um, there's more advanced uh, ways CPR is done through EMS and the hospital through different kinds of medications and stuff. Um, part of this also is through intubation, which is a tube that goes into your mouth and into your lungs, and that way you can ventilate and hopefully oxygenate your body. Um, that's the artificial ventilation. Defibrillation is the actual, the paddles, you know, they say clear, and you zap them and type of thing. And, and then finally, administering of the advanced cardiac life support drugs. And I bring this up... Um, because a lot of people think if I sign a DNR order, that means I don't get treated. And that's false. You need to know, 
if you're in with, I keep going to liver cancer because it's just in my head. If you have liver cancer and you've decided that I do not, I do not want to be resuscitated and you have a cardiac event, then they're not going to do that. But they're still going to help you with the liver cancer. They're still going to be able to give you the pain medications, insert the drains if you need it, and still help you through that process. But if your heart stops, we're not going to defibrillate, we're not going to shock you, and we're not going to pump on, you know, do the CPR on your chest and those kinds of things, okay? So a lot of people um, think that the, D, the DNR thing is like, always oh, just stop everything and just let anybody go, and that's, that's not the case, okay? As well as the DNR... Um, you can have a DNR and not be in the hospital. So if you are at home and you have liver cancer, but you do not meet hospice criteria, um, but you do not want to be resuscitated should an event take place, you need to have a signed signature by a physician and two witnesses in your house. Um, I called up Pride Care this afternoon just to verify this because I thought, what if one of you had a horrible terminal disease, and you've shared with every one of us here that you do not want to be resuscitated, and we're in church service, and you have an event, a cardiac event. We'd have to call EMS. We'd have to call the police. We'd have to call somebody, because should you die, we got to do something with the body, and we just can't call a funeral home, because they need a signing physician to sign off on it. So I called EMS here at Portage, and, and they all verified that if you have the DNR form on your body, then they will honor that. But it has to be the original form, okay? This is why it's so important to have your DPOA, to have a copy of that DNR in their possession as well. Um, I would personally, what I think I would do is get like five copies of it from the original the original pay, have an original paperwork with the physician's signature on all five copies and the two witnesses, one for you, the person who's the DNR, one for your DPOA or your spouse, whoever, one for that refrigerator door, that it's right there, you know exactly where it's at, it's got the magnet on there, it's taped on there, whatever. And then whoever else you usually hang out with, because say if Jim and I ended up going to uh, Ernie's to have lunch together, um, Jim and I are across the street, and we kind of hang out a lot, then maybe I should have one of those DNR forms so if, if I die, then Jim can say, no, don't do that. She, he's got the form on me. <laughs> we're, we're laughing because we talk about this a lot. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. It's, it's kind of a hot button, and I, I just want you to know that it does not mean that you cannot receive treatment. You still can receive treatment. Just because you have chosen not to be resuscitated in an event where all of a sudden your heart stops doesn't mean that you don't receive treatment or care, okay? So that's the DNR talk, and that's usually under medical living will. Um, and I talk about it up here. You still could be treated for pain, difficulty in breathing, anxiety, depression, nausea, infection. So you can still have like antibiotics, antivirals. Insertion of drains, skin care, constipation, uh, fatigue, those kinds of things. So this is where I like to start my open mic part. 
who do you choose to be your voice? And how do you know it's the right person? You need to have a discussion with somebody. Um, and you need to have them know what you want, what you don't want. If you are um, a young person battling a terminal disease, it needs to be talked about with your parents. If you are an elderly person, you need to talk to your spouse or your siblings or your uh, children about what you want and what you don't want. Be very specific. And if you don't know what the right answer is, you can talk to the physician, or you can talk to me as a nurse or find another nurse or a pharmacist or something like that. They are pretty much up to date on what's going on because sometimes people think, oh, this is the end of my life, and it's really more of an inconvenience. For instance, uh, someone's had high blood pressure all their life. They haven't treated it until recently, and now they're in kidney failure. Well, do you want dialysis? A lot of people said, oh, I don't want to deal with that. I just soon die. Well, you can actually live kind of pre-renal where your disease is advanced for years without dialysis. It just affects your other organs and stuff. Or you can choose to have dialysis. There's several ways of doing that at home. Or you actually go to a dialysis center three times a week. And it's just an inconvenience of time that you have to be dialyzed four hours, three times a week. So 12 hours a week. And for the most part, you can live a pretty healthy life, providing your heart's good and your, your diabetes is under control or you don't even have that and you're still able to eat and stuff like that. So is dialysis a bad thing? Maybe not for you. Maybe it is. I mean, these are the questions that you have to have the discussion about. Say you're going into renal failure, but your heart is really bad. Well, having dialysis is really taxing on the heart. So maybe you shouldn't have dialysis because you can have a cardiac event while being dialyzed. Do you want that? I don't know. But not having dialysis when you have a bad heart means your heart's going to be struggling even more so because you have a lot of water hanging out. Those are the balances, those checks and balances that you need to have those, the talk with, with your spouse or whomever you want to be, have to be your DPOA. So it's open mic time. I want to ask... Answer questions? Questions on advanced directives, medical wills, DPOAs? What are you thinking? Well, let me just ask that. What are you thinking? I have a copy of them. Yeah, you can get them. Exactly. And this. <laughs> Right, right. Um, I have copies enough for everybody tonight if you'd like to have a copy to go home with you. They are online, though. Yes. I think I can talk loudly enough. So if you have a DNR, then worry, and suppose you're in good health and just have a heart attack, well, probably maybe it's a good thing to be resuscitated as a CPR vet. How does that come into play with us? Right. If you have a DNR, you're not going to be resuscitated. Okay, so if the heart stops. Right. You may not need a DNR status. Yeah. Right. If you're a healthy person, then. How did you bring somebody up that fact? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? The question is how do you convince somebody of that fact to, to have a DNR? Or. Take your time. It's okay. My mom is 73 
She wants to die. two things. One, it sounds like she's still grieving, even though it's been 12 years, right? Would you think? The other thing is, is I don't think she's found value in life right now. And that probably, that goes right into the, the second section <laughs> of the uh, medical living will part. How do you decide what you should and should not uh, what, what, who, I mean, how do you decide what should and shouldn't be done type of thing? And the questions you need to ask is, what do you find that is valuable or adds value to your life? And what makes you want to live? That's the question you're asking me, right? So I would answer that question by asking her the question, Mom, what makes you want to live? As opposed to, I just want to die, I just want to die. I would suggest getting professional counseling for the grief, for sure, for her, because it sounds like majority of her died with dad. And now we need to move on, right? And she hasn't moved on yet, and she's still grieving hard, right? Right. You should also know with a DNR status, um, if you have a surgical procedure, it's usually null and void for about 24 hours, 24 to 48 hours, depending on the type of procedure, because um, it just is that way. I mean... Surgeons have this thing about having people die on the table. They just, they just not on my watch, okay? <laughs> and you have to understand, too, surgery is, it's, it's kind of, it's taxing on the system. It's taxing on the heart and the kidneys and all that stuff. Um, so, and, and when you're underneath anesthesia, you know, your heart slows down sometimes, and sometimes your pressure drops, and so they're going to give you life-sustaining medicine during that time so that you're still knocked out, but yet you are still got good blood pressures and good heart rates and stuff like that. So that's why it's null and void, too. So it's kind of a combination of things. But then after 24, 48 hours, they will turn that around. So same thing with, like, um, cardiac catheterizations. Um, because you are having a cardiac cath, they are actually putting a wire inside your heart, and that wire can irritate part of your heart and throw you into rhythms that are fatal. So if you're having something... If you're having that procedure to correct it, then let's correct it by, you know, doing what you need to do, whether it's zapping your heart or giving you the, the medications to turn things around. Otherwise, why have the procedures on, you know? But I, for you, sweetie, I would definitely um, get counseling for her mom first and stuff and ask her the question, what makes you live? You know, what, what's, what is it in life that gives you value? 
Anybody want to share that? What in life gives you value? Because that's a million-dollar question. I mean, what makes you want to live? When you think about today's um, Syrian news, devastating news, what makes you still want to live in a world that has that happening? You know what I mean? Family, for sure. Grandchildren. Oh my gosh. Really thinking about signing a DNR for myself. And now that I have this three year old lady and a little baby, I mean, that is why I live now. I'm, the baby is the reason to live. That's, mm-hmm. that's the only way that I have any real chance of affecting society. Right. Make a change. Right, right. She was talking about still family. Um, it kind of makes relationships very important, doesn't it? You know? We have a Trinitarian God that is the highest priority is relationships among the, the Godhead three as an example of who we're supposed to be in the image of God. That's why relationships are so important. And that's why when you sign a DNR or, or the DPOA, it's a high calling, actually, when you think about it, because you, are, you have to have the guts to say, okay, Dad did not want this, and I'm going to stand up for Dad, and we're going to take, medica- take these machines off, and we're going to let nature take its course. It's a high calling, and it's, it's a hard one, too. And you may take a personal hit with your siblings or something like that. But it's something to think about. Sandy. Exactly. Yeah, you need... Right, right. Right. If you are unable to swallow, what do you want? Do you want those pills to be turned into an injection in your body, or do you just not want to have them? 
Sometimes the pills are really tertiary in need. For instance, uh, a statin drug to lower your blood cholesterol. I mean, if you are struggling to breathe, are we going to worry about your cholesterol level? It's just not a high priority, is it? You know? So it, and not to mention statin drugs have a tendency to make your muscles ache um, and feel fatigued and a little bit weaker as well, too. So... The difference between hospice and palliative care is that hospice, both well, first both of them will are goal oriented. The goals are different though. In palliative care, they will make sure that you are comfortable. Um, they will make sure that you're going to obtain your goal. Um, but any kind of treatment that's done is not curative. And same with hospice. The difference is is that palliative care will still like give you chemotherapy for a cancer to help slow down that process where hospice says, okay, we're not doing chemotherapy at all because the chemotherapy isn't slowing it down enough and you feel really crummy and you're losing weight and you can't eat and those kinds of things. It's, they're very, they work together all the time, but the goals are a little differently, different. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with hospice, um, they'll take you off. I don't want to say they do it because it's, in, it's a coordination of the physician and the family and the patients as well that um, they will just discuss the medications that you're on because some medications just make you not feel very well or the side effects you just don't want to deal with anymore. Um, or maybe they'll just change something like some blood pressure medications will make you urinate a lot. Well, you're done with that. Okay, well, there's some other blood medications that you can have, but just know that you're going to have swollen legs and those kinds of things. There's, there's a payoff and stuff. So there's negotiation a little bit about medications and stuff. Yes. This is my husband. <laughs> He's got a question. <laughs> hey, I don't know, man. <laughs> No. Mm -mm. There has to be some sort of terminal illness. The definition of hospice is that uh, you will not live longer than six months. Do they take care of you after six months if you're still alive? Yes. We've, okay. Uh, we're just going to, that's right, drop kick you out in the street. We've got clients at the hospice that I work at right now that have been with us for two and a half years. You just get recertified because you justify that there is a terminal illness. And it just... It happens that way. It's not surprising that when a client goes onto hospice that they actually feel better for the first month or two because the just, we're getting rid of some medications that actually, like I said, make you don't feel that well and stuff. We just want you to be comfortable and feel well. So, questions? Yes, yes. Some senator down the road, back way when, um, just saw the value of hospice, and it is a high priority. We, as a hospice care provider, am able to give medications to you free, um, any kind of durable medical equipment, so oxygen, hospital beds, 
uh, bedside commodes, shower chairs, all of that stuff is paid for. Um, any kind of padding. So if you have incontinence, we'll have briefs or something of those kind. Those, those are paid for as well. Um, the things that they don't pay for, which I wish they would, is sometimes when there's only one family member and it's nearing the end, they get tired, and I wish they could, would pay for help, but they don't. Um, but yeah, it is, it's across the board. It's, a, it's an umbrella, and yeah, they do pay for that. Yeah, it's all the same. Yeah, it's all covered, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's good. Yeah, it is a relief to the families, and it's, it's a good question. It's good to know that. Now, some hospices will say, well, you're in hospice, so we're taking away these drugs, and they're actually pretty cold, and we'll take them away. We're not like that. Um, we just work with the patients and just let them know that, um, you know, down the road they'll say, man, I'm so tired and feeling fatigued, and we're like, well, let's take away the statin and see how you feel. Oh, okay. And they take it away, and they say, oh, I feel better, you know. Maybe not. But because um, why would you need a statin drug if you're in hospice? You really don't, but... Yeah. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. You just really need one. Right. Yeah, here's the deal with the advanced directives. Um, I'm going to put this down because I'm sure I'm making noise. The advanced directive, um, you just, the hospital always wants one copy and stuff. Um, and that's really all you need, but I would have one at home too, just so that, right, right, yeah, just, just so you know. Um, within, see, the, the difference, the problem with a medical living will in, uh, uh, is that sometimes it, it's, you can run down a rabbit hole with it. I want dialysis, but I don't want CPR, but I want this surgery, but I don't want that, and next thing you know, things are clashing each other. In order for you to be, you don't want to be a cardiac cripple, but yet you want the procedures to be done, but yet you don't want the medications. Do you see what I'm saying? Like a lot of times when I worked in the hospital, people would say, well, I want to have chest compressions, but don't give me any medication. And we're like, but how do you want us to start your heart? You, You know what I'm saying? Or they'll say, don't give me chest compressions, just give me the IV. And I'm like, unless I chest, unless I do chest compressions, the medicine that's in the IV is going to go from here to here. It's not going anywhere to your heart, you know. So you need to, it needs to be a, a collaborative understanding, you know. If you want CPR, you need the whole basket. Don't give me just parts of it because it's not going to work. We need the whole treatment in order for it to be functional. So the medical living will actually becomes kind of like a rabbit hole. Like, in fact, even on the advanced directive, which is in the state of Michigan, there's a section on there that you can write, if I'm in a, in a coma or a persistent vegetative state, you can um, remove me from the, the ventilator and let nature take its course. The problem with that statement is that it's very hard to pr- prove that you're in a coma. Um, I mean, it can be done, especially if you're, if you're brain dead, that's easier to prove. But if you're in a coma, that's a little bit different because your brain still has activity. And the problem with persistent vegetative take vegetative state is that it takes two months to prove so it's kind of like why is this even in this document because it it kind of sets you up for failure from a physician's point of view in order for you to be consistent 
considered to be in a persistent vegetative state, you're going to have to wait two months. And are you willing to be have a trach in and have a peg tube in so you have nutrition and be in a nursing home to take care of you for two months? Or do you want to just say, okay, let's time out, let's call this quits type of thing? Something to think about. There's a difference between you having underlying lung disease and um, going into the ER and not able to breathe and be put on a ventilator compared to you have pneumonia and you have healthy lungs and you cannot breathe and put on the ventilator. The two differences are huge. If you have lung disease, it's automatically harder to get you off the ventilator. That's just the way it is, regardless of the lung disease process. If you have healthy lungs but just happen to have pneumonia that you need to be assisted with a ventilator, that, that would be an anywhere from a two- to a five-day process, and then you're going to get off that ventilator. It's a lot easier. And, of course, the younger you are and the more you exercise and all those other things, you know, play into it and stuff. But do you, do you understand what I'm saying? If you know you have an underlying disease process, that's what you really need to talk about. What are the side effects of those disease process and how it affects the whole body? If you're a diabetic, you need to know that if your sugars are not under control, that it affects your kidneys. It affects your vascular system so that you're losing pulses in limbs. It affects your heart that uh, you're closing off some minor arteries and eventually it's going to close off a major artery and provide you a heart attack. Um, it affects your carotid arteries and your, brain, and your brain vascular system where you can have many strokes to eventually to have the point of a major stroke. So if you, if you are a diabetic, one first, let me encourage you to get your sugars under control. But um, just know that though, that's part of the disease process. And so if you're starting to have signs and symptoms of that, you need to understand, well, if I don't have blood circulating down to my toes, Am, am I willing to have half my foot amputated or half my leg amputated? I mean, it goes back to that value. Are you okay with walking around with crutches or in a wheelchair because you have half your leg amputated? Are you willing to have a prosthetic placed? You know, those are the kinds of questions you need to ask yourself and have that discussion with your family. I would ask him for sure, and I'd get a copy of it, but it should, it should, the system should all talk to each other, yes. Yeah, it should talk, yep, it should talk to your, to, so your primary physician, who may be at Woodbridge, anything, any of that data that's entered should be at the, accessible to the hospital. The problem is, is Borges' system does not talk to Bronson's system. So, Something happens at home, you call EMS, they take you to Bronson because Borges is too full. That's why it's kind of nice to have that copy for yourself. Well, what do they do with that when your insurance won't cover your they, Then you need to argue. <laughs> yeah, you, they, should, they have to cover. They have no option. If it's an emergency? Yeah. Oh. Mm -hmm, yeah. 
It's no different if you were, like you were just recently in Hawaii and something happened. Borges isn't out in Hawaii, so, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah. Right. Twenty years. It is spouse first. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, you want to get the advanced directive. It's really, it's, and the, here's the crazy thing. Do you think I have one? No. Six, 60 years, I'm going to be 60 years old pretty soon, and you think I would have an advanced directive. And I've got all this experience. Honey, you and I are going to be doing something this weekend. We need to get that set up. I mean, really, there's, yeah, happy Easter, right? I mean, it is a gift to your, it is a gift to your family, seriously. Um, something to be said about uh, sibling or like children. Uh, some families have large families, and when you have large families, they are never always in agreement with each other. Is that true? <laughs> okay. So you need to have either one person that's going to be that spokesperson that can stand up and be strong, or you need to um, say, okay, majority rules. You've got seven siblings, five of the seven say, yeah, let's pull the plug. And the other two are just going to have to suck it up. And that might be something you need to put in writing, something to think about. Just one of those options. Notarized or something? Right. The advanced directive and the medical living will are something you don't need a lawyer with. You can just download it from um, the internet. The, this has like all your like medical plus financial everything. Really? I'd love to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have, to, I'd have to look at it and stuff. The only thing that you'd have to have um, that it's to, in order to make it legal is the do not resuscitate form. It has to be signed by a physician, and it has to have two witnesses, and um, it has to be original form. That's the only thing, you know. So if you're not associated with a facility or anything, or you're away from that facility, or whatever the case may be, it's happened. You know, we have, I have taken care of patients who have died at home in their bed in their sleep, and their spouse wakes up and their, their loved one has died, and they've called 911, and I'm telling you, we have the ability to turn death around, and we have the ability to keep people alive. We have the machines. We've got the medications. We have that ability. But if you've been dead for more than four or five minutes, your brain has started to die, and within 15 minutes, it's gone. There is nobody at home, and it's never coming back. And yet we still have that ability to put all those machines and medications in you and on you and keep you alive for, and you think, you know, I'm talking 12 hours. No, I'm talking days and weeks and literally months 
I mean, I have stories that would just curl your hair. And it's, and it's very sad. So a valid DNR form would be signed by you, the patient, two witnesses, and the doctor. Right. So this isn't something that if somebody is in an automobile accident and you're going in there, if nothing's signed, they do whatever those... Right. Right. Exactly. That's why I say to get several copies of that. One, it's at home, because most of the time it usually does happen at home. Um, but on your person as a patient, on your DPOA as a patient, at least three copies. You can. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, from a Christian standpoint, when to say stop and when to keep on going. The best way I can answer that is to get on your knees because I really believe the Spirit will guide you. And I say that from uh, personal experience with a really good friend of mine whose mother was in intensive care and she was in intensive care for almost a month. Um, she was very septic. Her gut was dead. Um, we, she had multiple surgeries. She was on a continuous um, dialysis machine. She was on a ventilator. She was trached. Um, and she, she and I had conversations just about every other day. And her, na her name, the daughter's name is Angel. And I said, Angel, what's God telling you? And she said, not to give up. And I said, then we're not going to give up. Now, had I gone to my peers in ICU and said, here's somebody who's 78 years old, who's got all of these issues, and they've been on this regimen now for five or six days straight, which is so taxing and hard on the heart, they would say, your friend's nuts. Your friend is absolutely nuts. But you know what? She celebrated like 12 years after the fact here just recently. She's still alive because Angel listened to the Spirit of the Lord who said, don't give up. You keep going. You're doing the right thing. That is what I, that's how I'd answer that question. Because here she is 70-something. Now she's 80-something, you know. But it could be 30-something. And God is saying you need to let him go. And that's a hard one. That's a hard one. And that's why the community is so important. That's why the body of Christ is so important. And that's why relationships are so important. Because we can support you or we can support you and your mom and we can support Pat right now, who's going through, you know, her own grieving process. We can support, we can support you. We can help you with whatever talents we have, which may be just sitting there and holding your hand, you know? Any other questions? Yes. Right, that's... Right. Okay. 
Right, right. And that's a, right. In an emergent situation, you did exactly the right thing because it's been documented by you to someone who will carry out your wishes. And that's very important. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's another topic of conversation because um, we could talk about when you're brain dead, what, what happens next? How do they decide if you're brain dead? Um, what, do you, what do you do? You know, some people have a hard time accepting brain dead. And so, like I said, we can keep bodies alive for a long time. And that's just it. It's just a body at that point. Uh, what do we do afterwards? Do you want a traditional funeral where you're in a casket and you get buried in the ground? Do you want to be cremated? How much does all of that cost? What about uh, medical donation of your body? What are the parameters on that? Because if you're taller than six foot, you can't donate your body. Okay? And if you're more than 200 pounds, you can't donate your body. You know? There's, yeah. <laughs> And actually, if you're very cachexic, which is very um, emaciated or very underweight, like if you're 70 or 80 pounds, they usually won't take you as well. So, um, yeah, there, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of things to talk about as far as, that's what I'm saying, the whole topic of death and dying is huge. One of the things I was going to mention was Sandy was talking about, she had a pacemaker, her dad had a pacemaker. Her dad had actually an internal defibrillator. Within the internal defibrillator, there is a pacemaker. The internal defibrillator will actually zap the heart to keep it back, to put it back into a correct rhythm. That part of the machine can be turned off. The pacemaker can keep on going, and when you die, it will, uh, it will stop working. You don't have to turn that off. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Well, it is like two minutes to eight. Any other questions? If you do, feel free to call me, write me, email me, whichever. If I can help you out, I'd be more than happy to. If I can't, I'll try to find somebody who can. <laughs>